G'day. And happy Friday. It's December 18th, 2015, and this is Travelogue, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. I'm here with a cast of thousands. This is a very special edition of the podcast today. I've got Peter John Lindbergh, who's our executive editor. I've got Aaron Florio, who's a senior associate editor for us. We have David Pryor, who's a contributing editor, and he is by phone from an undisclosed location. Uh, we've got Laura Redman, who's our digital deputy editor. We've got special guests, Hetty McKinnon, who's the owner of Arthur Street Kitchen, which started in a, a, a uh, as yet undisclosed location. We will disclose <laughs> the location shortly. She's now in Brooklyn. Uh, and we have Henry Roberts and Giles Russell from Two Hands, which is here in New York, but hails from uh, as spiritually in an undisclosed location. <laughs> so uh, my name is Brad Rickman. I'm the digital director of Traveler. And uh, we are here today to celebrate our destination of the year, Australia. Disclosed location. Um, <laughs> and so we're going to first, the first thing we're going to do is what we do every week. We're going to uh, sample our cocktail of the week. This is inspired by, not exactly, but inspired by the Imperial Sour from the barbershop in Sydney. So everybody have a little, have a little sip of that. Mm. It's very good. Not bad. Refreshing. Very refreshing. Perfect Friday Perfect night for drink. Friday. Outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So we, ha we are here. Australia has been named by Traveler. The issue's out today. It's beautiful. Um, and, and it's something that we've never done before. We have selected a destination of the year. This is the time of year, as we talked about before, where everybody in the travel business comes together and says, here are the places you should go in the upcoming year. It's December. We look forward. Um, everybody has their hit list. This year, we decided to do something different in the magazine, and I'm, I'm wondering if um, Peter and Aaron, you guys could talk about how that came about. Yeah, it was actually very organic um, for this whole thing, this whole process, and it was kind of, we, we really did kind of stumble upon it in a, in a funny way. As Brad mentioned, like a lot of travel mags and travel editors are constantly looking for the sort of, you know, big places that you'll go next year, and we certainly are always looking for that, but this one really came about kind of spontaneously because we realized we had all this stuff in the works on various destinations around Australia, including Tasmania and Byron Bay and Sydney and Melbourne. And we were we suddenly realized, like, well, wait, hold on. If all this is happening and something really extraordinary is going on down there, let's put all of this into one big package and just declare it our destination of the year for 2016, which we've done. And we've devoted 20 pages of the print magazine in January and another, you know, umpteen pages of, of online uh, content and social media content that we're, that we're rolling out in January throughout the month, which is Australia Month here at Traveler. So that's been really exciting. What do you think it was about Australia? What were the four things or the five things that you guys had going on that, that sort of came together that brought that about? Well, I think uh, at first we sort of saw a lot of different movement in terms of uh, in the travel industry and, you know, hotel openings, restaurant openings. There was, you know, a, obviously it was a huge deal when Rene Redzepi announced that he was focusing on Australia to move, you know, Noma out of Copenhagen and, and bring it down there. And just a lot of things were sort of revealing themselves. And like Peter said, uh, we sort of looked at, the, you know, the mix and the sum of all of these parts and we realized that it can't just be sort of a singular story on Perth or a singular story on Sydney or food or hotels or whatever it might be. Um, it sort of had to be Australia as a whole. And, you know, I, I know I personally, when I've spoken to people and, you know, I speak to people about travel all the time, uh, especially with Americans, Australia is constantly on people's radars and it's constantly a destination that people talk about. It's not it's not just a trend that will probably die. It's, it's, it's a real destination that's, you know, got longevity. And there's a lot of reasons why Americans in particular 
find it, uh, you know, a, a, for lack of a better term, and a sort of easy and also very exciting and kind of, and also in its own way a very culturally different place to explore. So you know, it, it sort of was the natural choice for us to kind of you know do this unprecedented thing, which was declare it our destination of the year. And I wanted to bring in David Pryor, who actually was um, the primary reporter and writer behind all this stuff, who's on the phone now from Brisbane, where he's from. So welcome, David. Thank you. <laughs> it's good to have you with us from around the world. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thrilled to be here. So, David, how did it feel for you to approach this as the destination of the year? Well, you know, it's really interesting. I've been gone from Australia for 10 years, and... Um, it's been kind of a homecoming, an unusual, an, an unusual experience for me because I'm looking at, some, at the country and where I'm from through uh, as an objective filter as possible. So it's not like this is a, a really parochial move or a patriotic move for me at all by writing all of these things. I'm, I'm comparing and contrasting things that are happening around the rest of the world. And I can say with absolute confidence that in certain areas, Australia is absolutely leading the pack. And I would say... Food is probably the most exciting mm-hmm. uh, aspect of that, and that's why we have so much food coverage, because things that are happening in Australia right now around food are totally extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And I think you, you see the chefs from all around the world turning their gaze here for a variety of reasons, mm-hmm. one of which is the general culture of, of eating, because you know everyone's engaged in eating out all the time in Australia, and it's it's a very democratic thing. But also now you have this introduction of indigenous ingredients, which has really changed the flavour profile of Australian food. And I think, you know, there's been great food in Australia for over 20 years, that's true. But it's always been a kind of carbon copy of elsewhere or kind of a an imitation. Now you've got this completely unique melding of all of the cultures that are present here, plus this top note of indigenous ingredients and it makes it astonishingly exciting to visit here for food. Yeah, and what I think is so interesting about that is, you know, we talk about Australian food and really what Australia does so well is sort of run the gamut in the most unpretentious of ways. We talk about Rene Redzepi going down there, which obviously introduces a certain, or, or, or rather solidifies a type of cultivated food culture. But Australia has also been pioneers in, you know, what's globally been exported as, you know, a cafe culture, which hasn't been, you know, as organically executed in America uh, until I think America started paying attention to what the Aussie cafe culture is. And I'd really love to bring in our panel at this point and sort of ask them, you know, the three people we have with us who are all native Sydney-siders but now reside in New York, uh, they've, you know, executed their own sort of take on that culture. So how do you guys think that, how would you define that culture and how do you think it translates here? Uh, I just, I'd say that it's uh, food for the everyman. So you've got a a style of food that uh, just appeals to, you know, everyday eating. Um, It's very, uh, they used the word in the article locavore um, when referring to what the Three Blue Ducks uh, boys are doing. It's uh, when you just get food that's uh, made, you know, easily available because that's what's, uh, you know, growing around you like locally and hopefully organically. Uh, I think Australians, 
you know, we, you know, say no worries a lot and we're no fuss kind of people. So we, we like simple food. We like flavors that are based in ingredients. Uh, and we're lucky enough uh, for the most part to, to have that readily available. So people are making, uh, you know, simple salads that are just taste delicious and that are really healthy. And then uh, a lot of the food culture, I think, uh, growing up personally was, was based around home cooking. So you had a lot of home cooking and people would would cook mostly at home and then obviously as you know time went on and Australia started to open itself up to like international uh, like food culture um, we started seeing more restaurants because we were inspired by you know the people what the people were doing in New York or in London or or in Istanbul or wherever it is and we started creating restaurants and people became interested in eating out and now we're seeing these amazing restaurants uh, in in Australia which is like a blend of what we've all learnt at home from like our very multicultural background and also like what people are doing around the world and and Noma is an interesting example of of that because interestingly enough like Noma is the one in Copenhagen is actually filled with a lot of Australian staff if when you go there you the maitre d is Australian a lot of the servers are Australian the sous chefs are Australian and and so it's interesting to think about that because what has Australia's influence on Noma been mm. because it's the biggest restaurant in the world and it's obviously it's very clear that like for someone like Rene Redzepi <coughs> who's very, you know, like obviously influenced by the world, has been very influenced by Australia and has that, that has, uh, you know, like made him come back to Australia and explore it even more and, and dive very deeply into the, the food scene there. And uh, it's incredible to, to see him like uh, on an international stage come back to Australia and really like uh, show the world what, what everyone's doing in Australia. Hedy, I know we were talking earlier about the whole the, the cafe culture that you are part of here in Brooklyn, um, mm-hmm. which is interesting to see, as, as Aaron mentioned, like seeing a, that really exported into yeah. into the New York thing and translating that very Australian to me, sort of emphasis on, on healthy ingredients and local yeah. ingredients yeah. And, and that sort of all-day dining thing. Yeah. What have you found since in the year that you've been in New York, um, how Americans respond to that? Oh, look, to be honest... Um, I make salads and, you know, I, it's, a, it's a no-brainer in Australia. We, we make salads, we eat salads. It's, it's a cultural thing probably. And I was very excited about bringing the concept to Brooklyn because I felt like, you know, it's a place that really um, supports startups and it's um, – but I, I mean, the, the people have really um, – I, I find that I can't actually buy a lot of salads, the type of salads that I like to eat vegetable packed, full of flavour, you know, not leafy um, salad bar type salads, but things that are really substantial and, and things that are a standalone meal. Um, I, I came here kind of looking for that and I haven't been able to really find it at that many places. Um, so when I, um, I do a pop-up every Sunday in Brooklyn and I've got people begging me to make it permanent because this is the food that they're looking for. Um, they want it. They want to eat less meat. They want to eat fresh vegetables. They just don't know how to cook it. And so, um, yeah, there's been a lot of interest, and it's really exciting to bring a new concept to um, to New York. Actually, because I'm a small, you know, I'm I don't see my, I'm a kind of a local business, and I have a very local approach. Um, and people are really responding to that. You know, I, I really care about. Um, the, the way who's eating my food and the way they're responding to it. So, How has the reception to that been different here from how it was back home? 
I think people were in Sydney. It was um, it was almost an accident how quickly it caught on, and I've kind of tried to roll out a similar concept here. Like I want people to talk about it. I want people to take that away, and tell their friends, and tell their families. It's been. I think it was. Um, people were more instant in in Sydney because um, it's not a foreign thing to eat salads for lunch or for dinner. Um, but people are really amazing me right now. Like people in Brooklyn are just um, incredibly. I know I have people coming from the Upper West Side just on a Sunday to get their salad from the West Village to get their salad, and seeing people every week. And that's very much a part of what I do is build relationships with people through food. But it's been, I think people here are very excited by the opportunity to eat this type of food. Food that is fresh, prepared fresh. They want it. I, I really feel that there's a real need for it and they, they really are passionate about it. Yeah, Henry and Giles, you guys were talking, we, before we came on the, the podcast, you guys were talking a little bit about the differences between sort of acquiring product for your place here versus in, in Australia. What's the difference that you found that speaks to the, the, the culture in Australia and how the food culture there is a little bit um, sort of different from here. You know, obviously there's a lot of avenues to find your food, your produce in New York, but it's really interesting when we opened, when we put something on the menu as simple as avocado and toast and people just responded to that like in a crazy way and it was such such simple ingredient that isn't drenched in sauce you know, it's just, it's very natural and fresh and and it's something that's that's just letting the, the produce speak for itself. And I think Americans are kind of not used to that and really stripping it back and simplifying it has like really, you know, made people just like be interested in this kind of whole, you know, cafe concept mm-hmm. that, that we're doing, so. Yeah, and I think... I think you know, the other ingredient sorry. that's in there is that... Um, it's linked to coffee, whereas in America, you know, you have your morning coffee, you mm, might have pastry. Yeah. In mm. Australia, it's powered by the coffee. Uh, yeah. You know, that was the first thing that went there. You know, you have your your flat white first thing in the morning and then this quite indulgent breakfast. Um, it, it can be healthy, but it's it's become... I think it went, went coffee first because we never had that Starbucks thing take hold in Australia. It was always based on espresso because, of, you know, a big bedrock of the country is the, the Italian immigration. Uh, and that really sort of set the tone. And then from there, breakfast became kind of a, an important ritual. And and I think it's sort of this this casual, simple, fresh food, but very much paired with coffee, which is, I think, the unique thing about what happens in cafes in Australia. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, that's why Henry and I started Two Hands. We moved to New York four years ago and we lived and worked uh, in like downtown Manhattan in Soho and there's so many people around there and so many restaurants and we couldn't find a good place to have a really nice coffee with a really simple, easy bite to eat, something that was healthy and, and either you know you could have it on the go or you could have it sitting at a, at a table. We, we found good espresso, that's, you know, coffee in America can be really good but it was really hard to find uh, espresso with really uh, nicely like flavoured and textured milk mm. which is mm-hmm. um, you know how Australians mm-hmm. do coffee it's it's delicious espresso but then 
we're lucky enough to have really farm fresh milk and baristas use that because they know uh, that's you know there's two parts to coffee coffee and milk and if you put bad milk in coffee it's going to taste bad so we uh, you know we our first and foremost uh, thing was to make really really good coffee and then and offer food with it as well food that's you know un, uh, uncomplicated and simple and healthy and I think people really appreciate that because they can come in for five minutes and get an avocado toast and a latte to go or they can come in for 45 minutes hang out with all their friends uh, you know like communicate collaborate we you know like Hedy said we wanted to create a community we wanted to create a hub like a, a home for people in New York that wasn't just like this hustle bustle in and out kind of mm. uh, place of no feeling like a Starbucks or even like a you know a bigger restaurant which because of its size might not have the same heart so we wanted to you know like because in Sydney and in Melbourne and in you know most Australian uh, towns and cities the cafe is like your central point for meeting and greeting and catching up with people we always talk about like this like yeah. It's like the pub, yeah. Like it's like mentioned the, in the article. Yeah, yeah. the new yeah. version of the pub, and yeah. it's a and, you know it's a turnstile of people. You might you know get there and meet one person, and that person leaves, and you meet another person, then you leave, and another person comes to meet that person, and it's just this like really vibrant, buzzy thing, and it's I think. New York deserved it because it's you know it has the people to to be in it and they and they like it and so you know we're just now bringing people you know that concept yeah and what I just you know to to that point I think what's also really important to note is that yes it's it, it's definitely found a home a natural home for itself in New York but you know that culture has been exported to London it's a huge deal in London I mean the Aussies and you know I have I have to I also have to say the Kiwis have <laughs> exported that cafe culture to London which people 100%. really respond to yeah and, and, and you know it's the same in New York but I think you know the this also speaks to the larger picture, which is something, you know, the article really touches on. And again, why we wanted to use Australia as our destination of the year is it's about an exportable lifestyle culture. And, you know, the, the cafe culture is a huge part of that. But it's that whole idea of doing something well, but doing it without the pretension. Yeah. And I think that's mm-hmm. kind of what, what sort of summarizes Australia. And that's what makes it so accessible and so approachable and something that people want to replicate and, and, and finds a home really naturally in so many places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really extending beyond um, beyond that as well, to, to Aaron's point as well, this whole mixture of that you can have good taste in interior design and, and food and culture, and it, it doesn't mean that you have to be in one particular silo. You don't have to be a foodie or someone that's fashion-obsessed. You can have uh, a taste across a whole spectrum. And that's what's really interesting that's happening in Australia, and you see it in the hotels as well. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, that's kind of changed. Mm. You know, whereas once before you had uh, bigger chain hotels that would kind of be replicating what was happening, say, in New York or London, whereas now you have something that's a little bit more endemically Australian. They're celebrating what is what it is to be here and to open a hotel here. And there's lots of examples in the issue, like the Hotel Palisade, which is in, you know, a legendary pub, and now they've got great rooms above it. Um, the old Clare Hotel in Sydney as well, which is, the old brewing uh, headquarters of Carlton Brewery that they kept all the original heritage features. You know, there's a 60s beach motel in Cabarita Beach in the Byron area, which is really Australian in that way. And beforehand, I don't think Australians had the confidence to say, hey, this is what we've got and this is our style and this is the experience that we want to show international travellers. And so that's another whole other level to, to the cafe culture and the export style as well. I, think to me, I was most struck with David, and, I, and you and I have talked about this, but, but on my last visit to Australia, I remember just thinking that the, there's an easy sophistication to everything that sort of speaks to the lifestyle thing. There's a, there's a certain 
comfort with good taste that's not about, as the Australians have a great phrase, you know, pull your head in, um, and this whole idea of the tall poppy, which is the kind of, you know, the sort of arrogant standout kind of guy who's all about himself. Um, there's a real aversion to that kind of thing. So the idea of being a cocksure, kind of overconfident, you know, broadcasting your taste thing is not is not part of that culture. But there also is this lovely kind of worldliness and sophistication from travel and from all these different influences that sort of sits sits lightly on the shoulders of, of a lot of Australians, and it's nice to see that. Yeah, I would I would say that. I mean, Peter wrote a, 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 an incredibly articulate and and uh, uh, wonderful introduction to the whole package, which really nailed it, mm-hmm. I think. And, you know, it's it's interesting because Australians are... We, we're a big country geographically, but a tiny country in terms of population. So growing up here, we've always looked outward. And so everything, you know, elsewhere was better. But now all of a sudden that's changed. And we've gone, oh, well, actually what we do is kind of incredible because... You know, we're connected globally, whether that's sort of through Instagram or or social media. No, we don't. We're sort of coming back now, and we've had this world experience, and we're saying, well, what what's here is actually of a standard that's equal to anywhere else, and it's also completely and entirely unique. So I think it's a real shift that's happened culturally as well. So it makes this moment the right moment to call it destination of the year. I think. So just to be the the naive American for a couple of things, and just to for for listeners, right? Can we get let's get basic, you know, um, some basic definitions out here. What is a flat white? <laughs> oh, <that question. laughs> and I, I say this as a as like my wife's Italian, so I'm familiar. I'm conversant with coffee okay. culture. I, I, I think even I can feel. I did go to barista school twice down in a, down in the southern twice. hemisphere twice. Not because time. I failed, yes. but because I was so it was so entertaining. I wanted to do it two times. You got the mic. Um, <laughs> so essentially, a flat white is okay. It's it's your basic latte, but. Come down in volume where you have, uh, whereas the latte will have two thirds milk, which one third will be foam and one third will be foam, um, heated milk, uh, and one third will be espresso. The flat white will just have the heated milk and the espresso. Am I right? It's, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I <laughs> There's something ineffable about this, right? Like every time I, I ask this question, it feels like there, you you can walk around and cup. answer, but you can't like <laughs> land on an answer. There is a coffee it's called a magic. Oh, there we'll no. get it. That's, yeah, a, yeah. that's the advanced class. That's but, coming out in 2017. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's just Coffee Melbourne people being Melbourne. Um, the way well, the way we do it, and it varies from place to place, but oh we goodness. offer our flat white in a six ounce cup, two ounce being our standard shot, so it could be called a double, and then four ounces being milk, and then a small percentage of that being foam. Whereas um, a flat white comes with a very like micro foam layer on top. And you've got your typical latte art, which is, you know, kind of standard now and assumed. Um, and then if you compare that to a cappuccino being the same size, more foam. So essentially you probably have like a stronger tasting coffee because you'll have less milk, more foam. And then um, in Australia, t- traditionally, we put a chocolate dusting on top. So that's the real split in Australia, like visually. Um, here, sometimes if you don't have a trained barista or someone who, who knows their coffees, they can get lost. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the way we do it. Um, is there a <laughs> preference for, for the roast of the coffee? Like, you know, in, in Italy, there's a, there's a preference for Arabica. Like, what, is there something like that that you guys have? Uh, no, not particularly with us. Uh, I mean, you could get super tech, and I feel like coffee is getting, like, 
laboratory tech, yeah. you know, yeah. across the board. <laughs> we bring like the way we do coffee, and we're really proud of it. Like, and it's and it's very like Sydney, Melbourne kind of. Um, influenced is you know we we pump out coffee quick but it's got to be high quality Mm. so we don't really have time to stand over and do pour overs and and you know do this and change this grind and blah 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 blah. like that's not it's not kind of it's like smash out the coffees get them out get them going and you know that's kind of how we how we rumble but um it's also like that that consistency in that in that rush. So yeah. like, you know, I love I love Blue Bottle and I lo- a lot of those American coffee shops. But you stand in a line that's like five people deep. It's going to take you thirty minutes to get yeah. your coffee. Which in Australia, like, mm. you wake up and the first thing, as David said, is you think about your coffee and you have your mm-hmm. coffee. Your coffee, like, uh, sorry, your cafe is your local, and you, you go there and there could be a line of like 30, 40 people. And so the baristas have to be really quick, but they also have to be really good because mm. if an Australian gets a bad coffee. You're going to hear about it. So, oh my yeah. god! And, and, and what does that look like? All our mums. Yeah. yeah, all our mums, and they're very, very specific. You know, what like, do you said? You say worries? Oh. No, yeah. yeah, no worries. No, yeah, no big, worries. Big worries. Big worries. Big if you worries. You get a bad worries, coffee. Big worries, mate. Yeah. So I think it's it's about like about being consistent, like in in a mad rush. But then also like you knowing your barista. Like mm. a big thing when we started Two Hands was that like we would make a huge conscious effort to like meet everyone that we that came into the cafe and get to know their names and get to know who they are and what they do because like in Australia your your local barista is kind of like your your counselor yeah <laughs> you seriously like it's like yeah. early morning like bartender song, yeah. yeah like you go you go there and and they know they know like you know if you just had kids or if your kids just went to preschool and you know like <laughs> All, all of that kind of stuff. If you just got, you lost your job, or you got dumped by your girlfriend, and and they hear you while making like a million coffees a minute. So, so a mean and they, and they and they care. So I think there's like a, a big thing to say ab- about that. You know, people kind of follow their barista around in Sydney. So even if there's a great cafe that you know sometimes does good coffee, if your barista's not on that day, you'll go somewhere else. Well, I do mm. anyway. Um, so yeah. that's fair enough. I, I think so. in um, I think the main difference I've noticed here is that you know in a, in Sydney or in Australia, barista that's a profession. Like people um, mm. are trained; they take a lot of pride in Very the coffee like a they make. In Europe. The new DJ, absolutely. I mean, it's a big deal, and they pride themselves on their amazing coffee. Sure. Um, and I think here, you know, often I get rather perturbed when the girl that's taken my money then goes and makes my coffee because I don't really want that. I right. want a barista. I want someone who's mm. going to know. professional. You want a professional. Yeah. I mean, I was asked the other day, I asked for a flat white um, and someone, so he made the espresso and then he poured the milk in and he said to me, tell me when to stop. <laughs> and I said, but it's a flat white. What do you mean when when to stop? And he said, "Well, everyone likes their flat whites differently." And I said, "No, they don't. We all want them the one way." <laughs> but is that something essential, like different in a, in, a, in 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 the United States versus really Europe or Australia? Right? Like here, there's this like sort of absurd democratization of, of things like that, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. As if you could redefine the drink on your own, and that's our an expression yeah. of pointless freedom. Yeah. Here, right. I mean, if I want, if I ask for a flat white, that's actually what I want, and, and not like you know, mm. <laughs> varied amounts of you milk. Know, David, I was just going to say something that I thought really highlighted, um, kind of the how widespread this this culture is, and how it's changed. Uh, 
uh, everything here. Um, I, last week I was at Uluru, which is in the centre of the country. If you did a, a target and had the bullseye in the centre of <laughs> Australia, that's where you'd be. And there's no towns for five or six hours' drive, and then beyond that, another five or six hours. I went to a roadside cafe. I ordered a skim flat white, and it was perfect. It's like at the gas stations in Italy, you get those amazing things at an SOC. The autogrill. Yeah, 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 exactly. The best coffee. I mean, and the thing is about it as well is it's not, it's not restricted to urbane elites. You know, it's not just happening in the inner city, mini Brooklyns of the big cities in Australia. This is something that is nationwide, that is cultural, that is every ethnicity and every socioeconomic background. And so it's something really unusual and, and, and completely unique, I would say. Yeah. David, one thing that, that struck me in the story that um, in, in our package in the, in the food covers that you mentioned yourself was speaking of the, the sort of democratization of the food and the globalization of the food, that there's this really... Uh, there's the real familiarity in, in Australia with um, with great eating and also especially with international cuisine, specifically the Asian mm -hmm. thing. And I wanted to talk about that briefly yeah. because to me that was what I was most struck for on my last visit to Australia was just how amazingly sort of natural and endemic the uh, mostly Southeast Asian but also Japanese and Chinese and dim sum and whatnot um, was to Sydney life um, specifically. And I think it's partly, you know, what Americans, you know, the familiarity that we have with, say, like Mexican food or with mm. Italian food uh, is Correct. sort of similar to what you guys have with the, with the Asian population there, that immigration has been there for years. You guys have been traveling to Asia for years. And I mean, I, I have a good friend here in, in New York who was, grew up in Sydney, and, and he remembers in the 1970s going to school lunch in the cafeteria and they would get like Malaysian laksa. Which is just amazing to me, you know, like that, like sushi right. would be on your, you know, on your cafeteria tray when you're in seventh grade, you know. Mm. Well, well, what I would say about that is that, you know, a significant portion of the population is from an Asian background. And I think about someone who's sort of the poster girl of all that. Her name is Kylie Kwong, and she's a well-known mm. chef in Sydney, and she has a restaurant called Billy Kwong. Uh, you know, that is like, oh, Cantonese food, but it's not really, it's sort of Canto-Australian, I think we call it, in the, um, in the issue, because the sources have a clarity and a clearness and a freshness. The flavours have a brightness. She's also now working with Indigenous ingredients, so she might stuff dumplings instead of with a normal spinach with warrigal greens, which is a native kind of sea spinach. Uh, you know, she's using wallaby tail and braising it in five spice. It's, it's sort of a very interesting thing, and it's it sounds like it might be gimmicky, like, oh, she's just using, you know, wallaby in order to shock the tourists. But in fact, what's happened in the past few years is that all of a sudden these ingredients have introduced themselves into the menus of restaurants, predominantly in Sydney and Melbourne, but throughout the country as well. And it doesn't feel like an earnest fusion. It just feels like the next evolution. And so there's a great ease amongst Australians to jump around Asia in terms of what they're eating and then also introduce it to maybe and there's an Asian note to an Italian dish that you might cook at home. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's a very easy mix and it's not sort of welded in a fusion restaurant of the 80s. It's just happened because isolation has pushed us all together. And so while we're using ingredients from our backyard, we're also taking influences from our neighbours. And I think that that's a really interesting thing. And all of a sudden you could really say that's Australian when you see a dish and it doesn't necessarily have to be 
you know, one of the, the more well-known things like a pavlova or Vegemite on toast. Yeah. David, it's like when I um, I go to Melbourne every now and then, <laughs> as you can on the other side of the world, and one of the best restaurants is still Flower Drum. I mean, have, uh, and I haven't drum. been there, and it drives me nuts. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Why is it classic? Well, Flower Drum, you know, the thing about the difference between Sydney and Melbourne is Sydney um, doesn't love its institutions, its dining institutions. It's really a dynamic city that changes all the time, so there's very few restaurants that really... Um, have a history, whereas Melbourne is the opposite. And so Flower Drum is, has been around for 45 years, which is the same as Chez Panisse, for example, in the United States. And I would argue that it has kind of a similar impact in culturally. You know, it's, it's a restaurant where you would go and celebrate. Um, it's in Chinatown. It's sort of a, like a, a very three Michelin starred, uh, but Cantonese, Hong Kong diner. But then You've got all of these incredible uh, Australian ingredients as well. So rather than, say, abalone, you've got pearl meat, which is the excess from the pearl industry in Western Australia. You know, it's just, it's just one of these great institutions, and it's, it's a place that uh, Melbourne people really love. And the same with a couple of Italian restaurants as well in, in Melbourne. There's just a real ease from jumping from, say, Italian one night to Chinese the next to, to modern Greek. That's another thing that's really happening in Australia as well because Melbourne is, um, I think, the third largest uh, Greek city in the world, <laughs> if you can believe. Um, you know, so there's just that multicultural... I think it's a real... Um, it's really emblematic of what was a very successful multicultural experiment in, in Australia that, that everyone has such an ease with eating food of different cultures. And in fact, it's not really modern, modern Greek or modern Asian or modern Italian. It's really Australian, modern Australian food. Hey, David, you're on the other side of the world as we speak, and I know you're getting ready for Christmas like we all are, but um, I, I wanted to know, uh, you know, you're in Brisbane, you'll be in Australia for the holidays. What do you, uh, what do you eat for the holiday meal? Well, you know, I mean, some Anglosphere things die hard, so... <laughs> I mean, I, I think that in my family there would be a riot if there wasn't a turkey and a ham and roast vegetables um and that that these these old habits die hard but my cousins would stage probably a protest but you know it's interesting Uh, some other families do something completely different they just go completely seafood and have you know mangoes for dessert whereas i I have a little trouble converting my family from the uh the old favorites but it's the most absurd scenario because i'm from queensland which you know it's like hot the texas of australia let's say and uh, it can be it can be 110 or 115 degrees in the shade and there you are slaving roasting this bloody turkey but uh, i think i think that that's um i think that that's going to die out pretty pretty soon i think that you know the next generation is not even really thinking about that they're really they're having a much more a much fresher approach and it's a much lighter thing for Christmas, but um, we still, I think, are holding on to that tradition somehow. Um, second naive American question, avocado toast. And we were talking <laughs> about this a little bit earlier. This is definitely proliferated. It's everywhere now. Is this an Australian invention? New Zealand? She put her hand up here. Points of the fight. No, I, you know, it's Antipodean for sure. Um, I, you know, I will admit I grew up in New Zealand and I, I, I tend to, you know, claim the flat white and the pavlova as my own, as so many Australians oh. do as well. Oh, dear. Um, Commercial. Yeah. <laughs> it's good that everybody's so laid back. 
along with Russell Crowe. Oh, and, you can have yeah. Russell. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's it's uh, it's it's definitely if it's you know regardless of whether it was a New Zealander or an Australian first, it's definitely uh, the ubiquitous breakfast down there, yeah. and it's certainly something you know I, even here you know I've introduced it to so many of my friends uh, in New York, and it, and it's also found its way to New York through people like you know. These guys sitting here, um, but yeah, it's 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 once you try it, it's probably I would say it's the best breakfast you could have. <laughs> I would. Yeah. It's it's perfect. It's cool. Yeah. And you call it Avo, right? Avo, Avo, yeah. Everyone but then does. you also have the abbreviation for afternoon is Arvo, A R V O. Yeah. Would you say Avo? Avo. <laughs> Why? But it's uh, it's the it's eh. Avo, okay. Yeah, right. Like, so this avo, afternoon avo. is the avo, 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 avo. Okay, and, this avo. and avo. So it's and then avo. an avo toast. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It is close. Australians love, you know, like when we talked about like simplifying our food, we simplify our the language, <laughs> the well. English language, because yes. it's it's quicker and <laughs> easier, <laughs> and you know, it's like lackadaisical maybe, but you know, we it's it's a it's a fun we way to lax. speak. he's catching on (laughs) yeah exactly the the last time I was in Sydney it was in December um, and I remember just walking around the Sydney uh, farmer's market and there were all these signs from these bakers saying um, get some get some fruitcake for Chrissy. And I was like, like who is Chrissy and why is she getting all the fruitcake? And then I realized they were talking about Christmas. Brilliant. Which I thought was the height of disrespect. <laughs> if you're actually a Christian and you're calling it Chrissy, that just seems kind of a little you just sent aggressively it to like Chrissy Teigen, maybe. Yeah. No, no, but I, 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 I was... Oh, I'll send her some, yes, thank you. I was mentioning earlier to these guys too, you know, these, these you know, Americans, um, that we've even gone so far down, down in the antipathy to to abbreviate the word thank you to just ta, ta. because we don't want to like even extend the courtesy of the entire word, which I've always found so funny. And I, I, I the other thing I, that we touched on in the package in the book is Bill Granger, who I think for Americans is somebody who was one of the first sort of representatives of Australian cooking, and for many people maybe mm-hmm. even the the only. And I I'm wondering if 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 it's worth just talking a little bit about Bill Granger's you know influence, how he has sort of set up this moment in some ways. Well, I would love to speak to that um, because I think that somehow he's underrated totally in Australia, even though he's very well known, and that he went overseas to open other places. You know, so he's got spots in Tokyo, in Seoul, and in London, hopefully mainland US coming soon, I hope. Um, but to look back at his legacy, you know, it's almost 25 years since he opened that little cafe in Darlinghurst. And talking to him, you know, he's got quite an Asian influence as well because it was this communal dining, you know, very clean design, and then very, this sort of Italian indulgent breakfast thing driven by coffee. And I really regard him as sort of the patient zero in all of this because he really encapsulated what it is to have a very easy, elevated kind of home cooking. And he really made that little place, the the lounge room of all of these people that lived in apartments in inner city Sydney. Uh, And then through his books and, and magazine contributions, he sort of, he kind of put the sunshine on the plate is what is how my friend Sky Gingell, the Australian, uh, chefs based in London describes Bill. And I think that's really true. And I think, you know, if we can look at it from this issue and really say, hey, this is a person that really encapsulated this 
I think that's a, a, a nice compliment to pay him, but also one that he totally deserves. What do you fellas think? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think Bill is like subconsciously, probably not directly, but like a huge influence in what we're about and what we've done. Um, you know, some might say he's like, he, you know, his, his simplicity is, you know, speaks for itself, which we're all about. Um, Giles and I also, you know, see ourselves as kind of like self-taught cooks, which Bill is. So, uh-huh. you know, that's very refreshing to see that, like, you know, he he can do that. And, the, you know, these meals are approachable to, to cook yourself. And um, so, yeah, and, and same along with the design and just the, com- the complete vibe that he kind of, like, brought to Sydney um, yeah. in particular. Totally. He promotes a lifestyle. You know, he just has this... Totally. It's the lifestyle. He, he encapsulated that, you know, when... When that cafe, when his first book came out, it was in the Sydney Olympics was happening. And it was that, that was the last moment I feel like Australia, Australia had a real, or at least Sydney had a real moment where the world went, ah, something's happening here. And I feel like it's happening again now. Hmm. Uh, and I think that, you know, Bill with his big smile and his blonde hair, and he was just, he just, it felt, everything felt right about that and everything felt happy about it. And I think people really got behind that and then wanted to emulate it. And for sure... It's now it's it's fantastic place to eat, but it's it's evolved so far beyond that too. But I do think you know it's worth looking back and saying, hey, well, that's where it all began. Yeah, it's a great like breakfast, lunch, and dinner place, and I think that's mm. hard to do. You know, a lot of restaurants yep. in New York even like struggle to do that. We have brunch here, and then you can have a really good dinner place all in one. But to be able to like turn up to a place at like seven, eight in the morning—not that anywhere in New York is open that early—but mm. um, <laughs> in Australia it is. Um, you you know, and to feel just as comfortable at seven in the morning as you do at seven at night, even you know, like eleven, twelve at night when you know having having a drink. I think that's really difficult to do. And somehow, you know, with his you know that lifestyle element, he just nailed that. And and that he's you know, selling that all over the world. And I just went to the one in Honolulu, and it's it's beautiful in the day, and it's gorgeous at night, and like it's packed full right. of people twenty four hours a day. And and it's because like the type of food he produces and you know the the interior it's it it speaks to like every every hour that's right and you know last week i was there and i had chicken fried rice with pickled vegetables and a broken egg now that's not something you would have had in 95 for breakfast but it's something that is on his menu now and it's just showing he really moves with the the evolution of what how people are eating in australia yeah I would I would eat that. Uh, <laughs> right. um, another thing I think it's difficult for Americans to to sort of grasp is how big Australia is. I think there's this mm-hmm. sense in the U.S. among even among sort of sophisticated travelers who haven't been that you know th- they could do what they do in Italy and go and they could go <clears throat> as they go to Italy and they do you know, I'm going to go to Rome and then I'm going to spend a few days in Florence and then I'm going to, I'm going to take a train across to Venice. You know, you can't do that in Australia. Um, mm. Talk a little bit about the, the geography here and how that is sort of determin- deterministic in all this. Yeah, I mean, I, I would first say that. I, I think you're absolutely right to point that out. I think people have a very misguided sense of, uh, of the geography and how big Australia is and what they can accomplish. And I think, you know, uh, Tourism Australia did say to us that uh, America, Americans tend to spend on average uh, 15 days when they go to Australia, and that that's what they dedicate to it. Um, and and how they utilize those 15 days is they have a hard time figuring it out. It's you know, y- you do need to be quite smart about it. You do need to realize that you know, 
from getting getting from Sydney to Perth is essentially the same as getting from New York to Los Angeles. So mm-hmm. you can't assume that you can cover the entire country in 15 days. But the brilliant thing about Australia, and this is one thing I, I, I really always want to underline to people that are traveling there, is there are so many great day trips or side trips or weekend trips um, close to where your anchor city or your anchor destination is. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to Sydney, you can, you know, you can easily bounce into the wine country in the Hunter Valley. You can get up to the Great Barrier Reef even because it does sort of edge onto New South Wales. If, you know, Melbourne is more of your cup of tea, you can get into the wine regions over there. You can, mm. you know, jump down to Tasmania. And also, you know, if you do fly across the country and you want to explore Perth and use that as your anchor city, you've got the Margaret River, very accessible, and you can even go, you know, far up north and go to the Kimberley. And I think it's just, you know, there's there's the great thing about Australia is there are so many different types of trips and territories to explore, and you can do it all in a short, a relatively short amount of time. You just need to know how to plan, plan it properly. The other good great. thing is, is that the airports are quite set up for ease. You know, like in the, if you're traveling domestically in the U.S., you can really ride off half a day, whereas if you're traveling in Australia, uh, you can get to the airport really 45 minutes before, go straight through and just walk straight onto your flight. So that's actually something that shouldn't be discounted too because it does make the travel time much less and far less painful. Great. Well, look, no lightning round today, but any final thoughts from anybody that we've got here in the, the cast of thousands? I would encourage people to go to Australia. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think we can all agree comment. on that. And have a flat white. <laughs> let's go this yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's go this <laughs> Get your avocado on toast, have a flat white for breakfast, and uh, yeah. Get on the plane and go. I yeah. think I think just not. don't be afraid of the, the flight. The length of the flight, I think, yeah. is the biggest you know, deterrent. And Absolutely. I think, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. And you're going to be so excited that you're on your way across the, the planet that, like, you know, It'll go like if you that. don't enjoy it, then I, have I don't know what. I have never, mm. ever come across a single person in all of my life who has had anything negative mm. or, or, or sort of regretful to say about them choosing to invest in going to Australia mm. uh, for the time and for the money. I, I, I know that that can be some, something of a hindrance for people. Mm. It is one of the loveliest destinations to arrive in. Uh, it's so accessible in terms of the culture and the people. And, it, you know, if you haven't done it and you've always thought about it, go in 2016. All right. There yeah. you well have said. it. Well said. <laughs> destination of the year. Um, so just to take us out, um, we are at cntraveler.com. All of our Australia content, everything that we've just been talking about today, all of the inspiration that you need, as well as the practical stuff, is at cntraveler.com slash Australia-2016, 2016. We are at Condé Traveler on Facebook and YouTube, and at CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. And thank you very much, everybody. Have a great weekend. Go to Australia. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Cheers.